Welcome to the first in a series of Charles Fairham's podcasts for 2021. If you've clicked on the link, then you're likely interested in Charles Fairham or maybe hops or maybe the brewing and products and technical knowledge that Charles Fairham provides. In this first podcast, we're going to take a look at the last 30 years of Charles Fairham through the eyes of managing director Paul Corbett. There should be some juicy nuggets in the content, so sit back and enjoy. I'm John Stringer. I'm sales manager for Charles Fairham um, for the south and east of England. Um, morning, Paul. Morning, John. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And yourself? Yeah, very good indeed. Thanks. Very good indeed. Um, I wanted to start by asking you about if you remember your first day with Charles Fairham. Do you remember what you did? Yeah, well, uh, I remember my first interview, actually, more than my first day. Um, I, I, for those people who have been down to Charles Fairham before, they'll know the lane that comes down to the offices. And I remember driving down in my car. I can't remember the car was at the time, I think, uh, Ford Escort. And I remember thinking to myself, I wonder how many times I'll come down this road again in my lifetime. <laughs> We're basically thinking, will I get the job or not? Um, and... Uh, here we are 30 years later that I, and I can't even imagine how many times I've been up and down that road, which is uh, uh, well worn now and uh, how much the business has changed. Um, but the first day, um, the business at the time was um, myself, uh, a guy called John Farben, who um, was the MD at the time. And the, the previous MD to him was Jim Colston. Jim was uh, had been with the business a long time um, and he'd been running the business through the uh, days of when the company uh, or the hop industry was run on quotas by the hop marketing board. And the hop marketing board was very um, sort of stayed in its ways. It never really developed the industry. It was very con it concentrated very much on keeping the growers and the brewers happy in the UK, but never really looked at exports or anything like that. So the grower would have a, qu a, qu a quota to grow, of hops to grow. The brewer would have to buy off different merchants because the merchants would all have quotas that they uh, could could sell and um, it was all very nice you know all very friendly but that ended in 1984 I started in 1989 and obviously the business at that time had gone downhill quite rapidly since 84 because there'd been nobody in there really who'd been selling basically they just relied on the old business methods of um, waiting for the orders to turn up, you know, because that's the way they'd always turned up through the quota. Um, and so it was very quiet. The first the first days where I got to know people who were here. Um, and actually, there was another guy there called Mike Montanda. Mike, Mike, unfortunately, is no longer with us, but he was um, uh, doing the role that uh, I was going to be taking over from. I didn't know at the time I was taking over from him, but he was teaching me. And the first, uh, the first day was a lesson on the Amstrad PC 1640, oh. <laughs> which um, had four discs, a yellow, a green, a blue, and a, a black one, I think. And they were all the different um, uh, programs that you could run. So if you wanted to run Excel, and I can't remember what it was called in those days, probably Excel, I'm not sure, you had to plug in the disc and load up the, the program before you could run the, uh, run the, run the Excel programs or spreadsheets. And likewise for Word and the other documents. So that was great fun. I mean, that was the height of modern technology at the time, the Amstrad PC 1640. No mobile phones in those days as well either. I'm feeling really old now. <laughs> um, and the thing that was the bane of my life at the time, which was a, an old typewriter, which I'd never really done a lot of typing before, but I had to type out delivery orders on. And I remember doing these delivery orders. And of course, 
there was no delete button. When you made a mistake, you had to get the tipex on and the, the white out and white out the delivery orders, which was uh, that's a nightmare. Most frustrating. I remember throwing pieces of paper across the floor after about the tenth effort, uh, trying to get these these blooming delivery orders right. And um, so yeah, so it was uh, it was a baptism of fire really when we came in there because um, there was no really a, there was no accounting uh, in the business. Uh, the, the, the invoicing and the accounting systems were all a bit haywire. Um, they needed replacing and we were putting in a new system which was called Kalamazoo, which was handwritten. It was not on on the computer. And uh, so that was fun. So I thought I had to, I had to impl implement that. Uh, I had to cut bales down from full 80 kilogram pockets down. I think that was actually my second day was was cutting a bale down from a 40, 80 kilo to a 40 kilo. And I thought I felt very proud of myself because I cut this bale in half, stitched all this uh, cloth on the top of this bale. And John Farlan came in and said, what have you been doing today? And I said, I've, I've just, I've just uh, packed a bale. I've just done a quarter of eight. He said, all right. He said, but what have you done that's important? And I thought, <laughs> uh, I thought I'd done quite a good job of that. Um, so in the early days, I did everything. So I was um, basically the dog's body. I was making the tea. I was uh, uh, trying to get the accounts package working. I was driving the forklift truck. I was loading the lorries on and out. I was taking a lot of samples. I mean, I started in the July um, and in the September that year, we then started receiving hot pockets and bales into the store. And we had these awful cradles that we put the, the, the pockets into. And they all had to be manually handled into the cradles. And then the cradles stacked one on top of another, which wasn't very safe looking back at it and was blooming hard work. And I think it's where a lot of my back problems come from these days. But um, fortunately, we don't have to do so much of that these days because the, the bales are now 80 kilo, uh, 60 kilo square bales and they come on pallets. So it's a lot easier to maneuver them around and uh, lift them. And I remember receiving our first mail from the Czech Republic or Slovenia, I think it was Slovenia actually, and um, it was 150 kilos in an 80 kilo bale size. So they really pressed it to save on the space, this, the packaging space and the, on the delivery lot lorry. But it was like a concrete block and to try and chisel into it, I had to get a hammer to knock the, the, um, the knife in to cut the bale down because our customers were looking for smaller volumes. And uh, the, knife, the knife broke because it was such a hard bale. It was like a bale of concrete. Eventually, I got through, but I'm at my second or third, and I got through this bale. And I thought, this can't be right. And I was rubbing the sniff in the hops. And I thought, they, they don't smell great. And, you know, a few years later, after doing a bit of study into it, I realized that the tighter they packed them, the, the more likely they were the little loopling glands of this sort of shape, this sort of saucer shape. And when you press the hops tight, you actually squeeze the glands and you lose the oils out of the edge of the glands. So we started saying to our, our growers in uh, the different countries, don't pack them so tight. They said, oh, but it'll save money on the transport. No, we don't want to pack too tight. We don't want to pack too tight. We want to get the quality there and keep those loopling glands intact. So there was so much going on in those early days, um, but also it was, it was incredibly quiet. Um, I remember uh, the first month I, I was sat in my office, which was, the top here, the old office is where the old office used to be at Ferrum's and sat at the desk thinking, uh, crikey, what have I done here? This is, you know, I moved out from a good job uh, with the Ministry of Agriculture. What have I done? I, 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 have I made a mistake? Because the phones weren't ringing. Um, 
Jim would often fall asleep. Jim Colson would often fall asleep in the room next door after he'd had his lunch. I could hear him snoring in the room next door. <laughs> and I thought to myself, what have I done? Uh, is this business ever going to get going? But driven by the passion for beer and for hops, um, I suppose I just started to make a few calls myself and spoke to a few brewers and got the accounts packages going, got the bailing going and eventually then we worked on to vacuum packing the hops into uh, the, the small five kilo packs um, and things just developed from that. We got our first computers, the proper computers, uh, you know, Microsoft computers and got an accounts package on the on the, on those systems. So it, it changed rapidly over a, a 10, 20 year period, I suppose. Well, that's probably not quite so rapidly, but you know what I mean? No, no, <laughs> lots of different changes, lots of developments and lots and of... In those early days, where whereabouts were you located? It wasn't in the current site, was it? Yeah, it was on the current site, um, right. but um, we we had a purpose-built office uh, office block built here because the numbers got got up to about uh, 12, 15 people. So we needed space because we were too tight. In the 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 old store, the original store was a grain store that we whacked an office into the corner of it. And there was room in there for about eight to ten people. And by the time we moved out, we had nearly 15 people in there. So it was pretty we were pretty rammed in. Um, and um, the the old office block is now our lab and uh, our um, warehouse teams um, mess room block, uh, where they keep the kit. And we also um, got a, a, a storeroom that uh, Charlie uses for all the, uh, the merchandise that we've got up there and posters and things like that. So. Um, and I can take you around that whole office up there. And I sat at every single desk station that was there. So at one stage, I was down in the bottom office then I moved upstairs. And yeah, lots of um, lots of moved desks moved around and lots of changes as people joined and people moved into different desks. Uh, quite a journey, really. And and so, um, yeah, it was it was it was really interesting how not just the business was changing, but also the brewery scene was changing as well. When I started, I think there were just over 40 small brewers, micro brewers, as we used to call them in those days. And they were brewing beers that were very sort of best fitters, miles. And the hopping rates were so low at the, that some people you know, weren't using late hops at all. Um, and I do remember um, some very early conversations with people who were experimenting. They said, oh, I need to put, get more. That was the biggest question I got asked in the day. How do I get more hot flavor in my beer? And this is where a lot of the, the pioneers were going in those days. And I remember um, people like uh, Hopback and Kenbrook at Harveston Brewery with saying to me, um, I need more hot flavor. How do I get more hot flavor? I need to, well, Ken, you need to put more hops in at the end of the boil. Oh, well, well it, I've got all these recipe books and they all say, don't put any hops in at the end of the ball. You know, the, the hops go at the start. I said, no, you need to put a few more hops in at the end of the ball. So eventually we got people to start putting a few more hops in at the end of the boil. And then all of a sudden these flavors started to develop in beers. And these beers that were being brewed with these uh, higher rate, rates of popping started to win prizes. And so we got further and further in and the rates went higher and higher. And we're you know, we're now looking at more intense varieties and more uh, highly hot beers that have gone very well. And I think almost and I think almost now we're starting to get to the stage where we're starting to go back a little bit towards some of those more um, session beers and uh, so lots, lots of the other different styles. You know, the porters, the stouts, the lagers, those beers are coming back in as well now, which is really exciting. And there's never been a better choice of beers than there is now. That was the thing that we didn't have in the 
in the 1990s was choice of beer. You know, pubs were restricted on what they could sell and there wasn't a great deal of um, choice out there. It was, it was best bitter or mild or occasionally a stag if you were lucky enough. And that was usually Guinness. So, you know, you, yeah. you, were, you were very restricted on beer uh, um, styles. But that has changed dramatically over the 30 years. And, and also uh, driven by hops. You know, a lot of that has been driven by the hop flavours. And, and my role has been driven by what our brewers have been asking for. You know, we've been looking at what we can do to produce different flavours. And a lot of that is bringing in new varieties from different parts of the world. Um, so I think, I think it was about 1996, I'd visit, a guy just called in on the off chance. Uh, from New Zealand and said, oh, we're growing some hops in New Zealand. I'm just trying to remember his name now. I can't remember his name, but uh, it'll come to me. But he was saying to me that uh, we would like a distributor. And I thought, wow, I'll give him a try. You know, why not? Let's have a few Let's have a few hops in the store that are different to the ones we got. Because when I started, all we had was Fuggles, Goldings and Challenger. That, those were the only three varieties we had was, in the store. <laughs> I was going to ask you about the 90s as well as the mainstay variety-wise. Um, it must have been the you, you weren't getting any Cascade over at that stage, were you? No, we didn't even know what Cascade was, John. It was... Output. Uh, <laughs> no, nothing at all. No, not in 1989. I think uh, at that stage, we were... Uh, we, we, we had no... I mean, in all honesty, um, the, the first time somebody asked me for a Styrian Goldie, um, I can't remember it was, uh, they said, can you get some Styrian Goldies? And I said, yeah, of course I can. And then I put the phone down and I thought, oh... Steering Goldens, what are they? <laughs> so I then started making a few phone calls to try and find out what the Steering Goldens were and where they came from. Found out they were from Slovenia. I bought some off some of our competitors. I mean, at the time, we were the smallest um, merchant. There were seven merchants in the UK, and we were the smallest one of the seven. And uh, so I rang a few of the bigger ones, and they sort of didn't like me bothering them a lot because I only bought a couple of bales at a time, and I wasn't really interested in buying a huge amount of hops. But they put up with me and I bought a couple of bales of Stirring Goldings off one of our competitors. And the brewer was extremely grateful. And we, we, we then started to look at other varieties and say these New Zealand hops came along in 20, uh, sorry, 1996. Uh, Tom Inglis was the guy who came to see me. And Tom came in and saw me and he said, um, before he said, we've got some of these varieties, would you like to stock them? Um, Sarts B, Sarts D, Pacific Gem. Right. Uh, Green bullet, all the traditional ones, stickleback. So we got a few in. Nobody wanted to use them. Absolutely nobody wanted to use them. They were just, you know, stuck there. We sold a few here and there. Um, I think a couple of breweries were looking at it and saying, "Yeah, we'll try them." And too, too much. Too, too, we're doing too much in the beers. We didn't want them. Um, so we kept them on the shelf. And they also, at the time, they produced little tea bags with uh -huh. uh, hot powdering, so ground up hops put into tea bags, which were then sealed in a, a plastic bag, um, a, a metal foil bag, but they weren't vacuum sealed. So they went off really quickly and we, that, we thought they'd be great for dry hopping, but they proved to be a bit of a nightmare, a bit of a disaster because they would break open and they, they weren't great. And the flavors weren't great because the hops weren't as fresh as they should be. But these are all things we were trying to try to develop the market and try and offer that range of flavors that you know we've uh, we've got today and that's built up over over the over the time um new zealand hops and then we started importing a few american hops in about 98 97 98 the uk 
market was a bit short of Fuggles at the time. And so we knew we could get Fuggles from uh, British, Col Goldings from British Columbia and Fuggles from uh, Oregon, US. And that was our first foray into buying American hops was to buy some Fuggle and some Bra uh, Bramling Goldings. They were, uh, sorry, British Columbian Goldings, BC Goldings. Um, and they were good hops, you know, we could, uh, we could see that they were good quality. The, the growers were doing a good job out there. So um, that was 96, 97, 98, somewhere around there. It was about the time. They were slightly more potent, were they, than the English? Um, yeah, so, sort of. I mean, it, it was about the time that Boddington's was going really well. You know, Bod you remember the cream in Manchester, yeah. Boddington's, and that was all Fuggles, Goldings, and WGVs. And of course, uh, we were trying to get as many Fuggles in as we could. Um, and um, they were buying some of those because they couldn't get enough British Fuggles um, because at the time their acreage was, well, as it is today, suffering because of verticillium wilt, you know, struggling to get those varieties grown. And so they brought a few in and you, you could smell there was a difference when they came into the store. You could smell that the, the intensity was higher. And um, that, that sort of followed on and we then started to look at other varieties and Mount Hood was a probably one the Cascade and Mountwood were the first ones that came across and you know people started trying those and really changed the way we sort of thought about you know, about the hops and Mountwood in particular I remember um, uh, Oakham JHB with uh, Challenger at the start of the boil and, gold, um, and Mountwood at the end gave an incredibly different flavour to a lot of the beers that were on the market at the time and because they stood out I think they tended to win a lot of prizes and they were, they were great beers, don't get me wrong, they were great beers, but they stood out in the market because of their difference in flavour. And the uh, JHB won, I think maybe 2001, 2002, were, uh, won the Great British Beer Festival at the time. And that was unusual because that was one of the first ones to win with American hops in. And then after that, there were quite a few others that won with American varieties in because they were just different and more intense. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, so yeah, we did a lot of, of work on those um, American varieties, um, and uh, you know it was it was great fun to to to, to try and taste taste those beers with the different hops in, the different characteristics, and you know people said to me, oh, well, you, you must have done a great job getting all these hops in for people. I said, well, actually, it was the brewers who were were, were, were wanting these things. Yeah, they were yeah. just saying, can you get this? Can you do this? I've heard about this. And they were giving me all the ideas and I was going to the market and just trying to try to source what they were after. And the business started to grow on the back of that. Um, we started to do more business with some of the bigger breweries, the regional breweries, because we were getting more access to the farms with uh, Fuggles and Goldings, uh, Styrian Goldings, the European hops as well started to come online. Um, at the time, Target was over half the acreage in the UK, so the Target the UK variety target, um, and it was used mainly as bittering hops by the big six at the time. So there were the big six breweries um, and then the regionals, um, and there were probably 40 or 50 regional breweries at the time, and then 40 or so small breweries. And the, um, so the, the biggest part of our business, I suppose, at that time was the regional, the regional breweries. The, the, the larger breweries were all using target, and we really didn't have that. Um, access to pelleting or um, extract. So we never really got into that market. Um, but we did then start to focus more on the craft scene. I mean, that was John and I had a passion for, for real ale and cast beer. Um, and 
really trying to help those guys and, and, and the way they were developing was trying to brew different beers to the regionals and different beers to the bigger breweries to give them something different to offer into the market. That was the way um, that all worked. So this is where all the innovation and the um, the, 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 the uh, inspiration for these uh, trial varieties was coming in. So ex the exciting times. It was a it was a very different time and very um, pioneering, I suppose, because at the time then I can't remember the year we we got um, progressive beer duty came in, but that also made a big difference to the the business here with uh, smaller breweries exploding. Um, the numbers of smaller brewers were getting bigger. We were we were looking after those guys in a market that wasn't being serviced very well for those people. I mean, they weren't they weren't being looked after well at all. Uh, in fact, one of the um, brewers told me he'd been trying to get in touch with another merchant who he phoned up, and another merchant had said, "I'm really sorry, I've got a meeting with Whitbread this afternoon. I, I can't speak to you. Just call somebody else." And and that was the sort of attitude that the merchants had at that time to the smaller breweries whilst we were looking at cutting bales down into smaller pockets so they could take smaller lots. We were also looking then at the vacuum packs so that these big bales weren't being stuck in. That was one of the problems at the time, big bales stuck in breweries, getting old, going cheesy. Come August the following year, everybody wanted new crop. So we thought, how can we preserve these? And uh, Sean Franklin from Roosters Brewery um, sent me a paper from New Zealand about a trial that uh, the New Zealanders had done on vacuum packing pelleted hops and the control measure was vacuum packing leaf hops and the leaf hops actually stored better than the pellets in vacuum packs which I found quite incredible and I said to John I said well, why aren't more people vacuum packing leaf hops and we started to look into it and a lot of the vacuum packing machinery was very antiquated well we call it antiquated now but at the time it was pretty, pretty modern but it, it wouldn't pack bigger packs so John and I scoured the world really looking for vacuum packers that would do a good job and also machinery that we could develop to, to, to uh, we bought our own little mini baler um, and started doing it. And it just grew because people were very happy to receive a five kilo pack um, rather than a, an 80 kilogram bale. Um, and that, that business grew quite rapidly. I, can't, I think it was, um, I think it was a Snowdonia brewery, which then developed into Salopian who, originally said to me, Paul, I only need five kilos. Can you cut me down to five? I said, I cut the bale from 40 kilo, 80 to 40, then 40 to 20, five kilo bale. I can't cut it down any smaller. Um, and they said, well, just stick it in a bin liner and send it up. We're going to use it tomorrow. I said, I can't just stick it hot. These are hops. I can't just stick them in a bin liner and send them to you. Oh, God, just do it. I need them tomorrow morning. Anyway, put them on an overnight carrier in a bag. And he got them next morning, brewed with them that day, and said, that's fantastic, can't you do some more for me? And I thought, oh, there's got to be a better way than this. So we started putting them in boxes in bin liners, um, black bin liners, and then eventually we moved on to um, these foil packs when this research that Sean sent me, I thought, this has got to be the way forward, and vacuum packing them. Um, and the, you know, the, the, the paper he sent me was never designed to try and show people how good vacuum pack leaf hops were it was designed to show how good it was at storing pellets yeah um but actually the vacuum pack leaf hops were, were fantastic and that's what uh, really got us going we we put a lot of money into that because we knew there were other already other people pelleting in the uk and there was no need for extra pelleting capacity but nobody was doing the vacuum packing so um we thought we'd work on that it does and make that you think though it does make you think sort of the convenient from the brewer's point of view 
a brewer back in sort of the late 80s against the brewer now the convenience of having you know you're not having to take a whole bale and the quality side of it whereas it's it's you know it's been it's been stored properly it's been vacuum packed and and flushed so um yeah it's, it's, well, it's the brewer the other thing with the brewers that we had at the time when I first joined, there were brewers that had got contracts with other merchants and they were told they had to buy four years contract out. So um, I remember one brewery in particular, got, um, he got a contract for four bales of Fuggles per year. So he got four bales in the first year, four bales in the second year, four bales in the third year and four bales in the fourth year. And they wouldn't let him buy any less. They said, no, you can't. We don't want you to buy less. You've got to buy four years out because the grower needs that security. And so um, after the end of the first year, he'd only used three bales uh, or pockets as they were in those days. So we got one left over. So for the following year, he then got five. And same again the next year. For the following year, he then got six. Yeah. <laughs> Every year that went by, he got more bales going on and they were getting older and there was they weren't properly sealed. So they were getting really old. So we said to brewers that we would, I think it was called, I, I, I lavishly named it the estimated brewery requirement scheme. So instead of us getting the contract off people, we would say, well, what do you think you need? Tell us, estimate your requirements. We will take that on board. We'll get the stock in and we will uh, store it for you and pack it for you. And um, that became... Um, sort of standard procedure for the, the smaller breweries and it's allowed smaller breweries I think to develop without having to invest huge amounts in hops um, once a year uh, a lot of the regional breweries still buy hops um, and, and thank god they do because we wouldn't be able to afford to finance it all on you know their whole requirement all goes off in one go and they store it and, and, and take it in from their cold storage facilities whereas here we're probably acting as the store and selling on the hops for the smaller breweries um, and that's why the site has grown so much here um, yeah. you know, we've had to get more storage the cold storage and, and, and improve everything as we've gone along um, to uh, to accommodate all that so yeah. yes storage has been a big part of it from so like from 2000 onwards um, I guess you were traveling a lot more because sort of like you uh, New territories were opening up, new new sources of, of you know hop supply, such as the states, as you say, New Zealand. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I I, I remember um, after we'd done these first few bales, we'd get some hops in. John from Oakham, as we said earlier on, had, um, had uh, um, used his Mount Hood, and he said, Paul, he said these Mount Hood are so important to my brewery now. I want to go and see where they're grown, and I want to I want to go and see the the, the farm. I said, oh, right, okay. And I thought, well, uh, if he's going, I think I ought to go as well. <laughs> we ought to get back together. Um, and so we said, oh, well, let's go, out, let's go out to the States. Let's go and see. So two very naive um, young men uh, set off on this trip to, uh, to, to Seattle. And um, I remember John got stopped for whole, having his, his Swiss Army knife. And, uh, and, and a guy came and escorted him back to put his Swiss Army knife back in his suitcase before he got on the plane. So that's how naive we were. Um, and um, we set off for Seattle. And, and there's another story, which uh, uh, John is a bit of a, uh, a trickster. He, he uh, we got to Seattle and uh, unbeknownst to me, he'd got uh, he got some um, 
Y-fronts in his bag with my name in the back of them. Uh, so about five or six pairs of big white army surplus Y-fronts. He stuck my name in the back and every place we went to, he left a pair in <laughs> bed. <laughs> and uh, the story was that when John arrived in the US, I'd gone through customs, where, but of course he had his bag opened and um, they checked all through the bag. And as this uh, uh, very uh, uh, young um, lady uh, was searching through his bag, she found this brown paper bag with about five or six pairs of uh, army surplus underwear. And she said to John, are these yours? And he went, well, no. Uh, well, yeah, but no. And of course, that hesitation then got him further questioning about where these underpants were going. <laughs> and he didn't tell me this until after he left, left them all in different parts of, the, of the, the US. And also, I had lots of comments from, from growers saying, did you leave anything behind? <laughs> uh, Sorry, made an impression by the sound of things. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, yeah, so it was quite a... Um, Quite an amusing start, and this was pre, all pre um, sat navs, and so we then set off from Seattle in a hire car to try and find our way across to Yakima, which was one long straight road. But the biggest problem we had was getting out of Seattle. I think it took us about four hours to get out of Seattle because we couldn't get on the right road going out of Seattle. We stopping at service stations. Uh, probably four hours is exaggeration, maybe an hour, but. Um, on a four-hour trip, it was a three-hour trip. It, it turned it into a four-hour trip. And it was uh, uh, stopping at service stations, asking for directions and trying to get onto the, the right track. And I mean, they, these were all roads that flew under and over. And it was quite a tricky bit. Once we got out of the countryside, it was fine up through the Rockies and over to, to Yakima. And uh, yeah, met up with a great family. We're still great friends with today, the Pewter Bowers. And uh, um, they showed us all around the farms, treated us uh, uh, extremely well, and we learned a hell of a lot about American hops and what the potential was for the new varieties. And, and Cascade in particular, John brought that in and, and put that into his range uh, with uh, Bishop's Farewell as the beer um, very early. And it was quite interesting. We used to go to a lot of SEBA competitions. I still do go to a lot of SEBA top competitions when they're on um, and look at the prize winners from those competitions. and. The one year I remember going across, it was at uh, uh, the Scarisbrook Hotel in Southport. And I remember looking across the bar and all of the winners in all the different categories had Cascade in them. I went across, yeah, that's got Cascade in. Yeah, that one's got Cascade in. Yeah, that one's got Cascade in. It was just amazing how Cascade had taken over, if you like, as the main craft beer hop. Um, and you know, that that's sort of carried on now with other varieties that have come through from the States. Uh, so uh, we, we then turned that trip into an annual trip and other brewers came along and paid their way. They, they you know, I, I always said that, um, you know, we couldn't afford to pay for brewers to come out with us, but there were brewers that came out. Um, Roger Ryman came out in the early days and Andrew Wally, who's now working for us here at Ferrum's, came out with, when he was New York Brewery. And all, every time brewers came out with us, they always said they learned something and picked up a lot. We used to go and visit brewers as well, obviously, and learn about the beer styles and um, lots of new ideas came from these trips and uh, great fun as well. You know, great opportunities to catch up with people, drink a few beers, have a laugh and uh, do different things. So uh, find, out, find out about new varieties and, and what's, yeah. what's, what's new and up people's sleeves in the States. Yeah, we used to work very closely with uh, Ralph Olson at Hop Union as well. Ralph was a, a, a craft beer 
pioneer in those days. He uh, um, he was a great guy. He used to give us a great deal of time and show us new varieties and look at different things. Um, uh, and Jennifer, who works now for us in the States, I first met Jennifer over there um, 12, 18, 19, 20 years ago when we first went. And Jennifer now works for us in the US office. So uh, that that's great to see as well that we've got that uh, um, uh, link with people we've known from all those years ago coming and working for us now. We've got the office out there in the States, which is great. So When, um, when did the US office open up? And, and we've also got an office now in uh, covering North America. We've got an office in Toronto as well, haven't we? Toronto, so, yeah. Um, the US office, that's a good question. I think it was about 2014, 13, 14, probably while we're here. So probably 14, yeah, 2014. So we're really seven or seven years now. And uh, Gordon Tilly was the one that helped us with that. Gordon uh, retired a couple of years, well, a year ago now. And uh, Char Charlie Matt is now with us, running the business over there. And um, we up opened an office in Toronto um, on the back of it all, really, because we had a, a, um, a friend um, who was uh, owned a business in um, Toronto doing a lot of homebrew stuff and, and selling to a few small breweries. Then he wanted to get out. Um, and he said to us, would we like to buy the business? He liked the way we did business and he liked the way we worked with brewers. And um, he was quite happy to work for us for a while to, to sort of hand it over. And that Toronto office has carried on. and and. Um, a lot of people know Ben Adams used to work at Y Valley Brewery and Ben's gone out there now to be the general manager. He's working out there uh, with the team there, developing the business there as well. So uh, it's nice to see all that, uh, all those links with team members as they've come along and uh, and the development work that they've all done. So, yeah, that, that, that's been fun getting those up and running. It's not, it's not been without challenges. Um, you know, we've uh, I think we've kind of registered a bit higher on some of our competitors radars now. So that's getting a, a little bit, <laughs> a little bit more difficult. Um, but you know, I mean, the, 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 there are lots of things that we've, you know, we've done over the years. Um, one of them is, is bringing Citra in. You know, um, Citra was a variety that we first looked at uh, again with John from Oakham. John produced his Oakham Citra beer from it. Um, I think John even slept with the bale cloth the first year <laughs> he got for Citra because uh, he he felt so. Um, uh, impassioned by it and um, we we flew the bales over in an airplane I mean it was a vast expense because he wanted to brew the beer so quickly um, and within about two weeks of him releasing the beer I got calls from breweries all in that area saying what's this guy got in this new in this new beer it's such a great variety uh, what, what 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 has he got in there and I said well it's this new variety called Citra um, and so that was the first Citra that came into the UK and uh, um, it's, a, it's a great story. Now it's grown to be the biggest variety in the US uh, and probably the world, actually. Um, it's, a, it's a massive acreage now. And like Cascade, I'm sure there'll be something that comes along that supersedes it. You know, this, this doesn't stand still now. People are always looking for something new, new flavors coming in. And I'm sure Citra eventually will, well, it'll carry on and, and, and go very well. I'm sure Citra Mosaic and those sort of varieties will do very well, but I'm sure there'll be other things that come along behind it that'll do equally as well. Uh, and who knows, you know, maybe uh, the, the breweries will come back and look at sort of uh, more traditional styles at some stage as well, because, you know, that is uh, uh, things I've noticed that, that trends change and the things that people want to drink are different to what their, their father drinks. They don't like drinking the same thing as their father drinks. They always want to have something that's new and something that's a bit different. So maybe there will be other styles that come in that 
that we have to get new hops for. Yeah. So that's all good fun. But no, I, you know, the, the other thing then from that uh, was when we were getting all these new varieties, we thought to ourselves, well, you know, we're in the UK here and there's not a lot of work going into craft varieties. They were going into high alpha varieties and traditional varieties. Everything that was coming through the program was having to be sort of focusing around fuggles and goldings. So we're trying to encourage Peter Darby to look at new uh, ways to bring in that American character. And we just happened to bump into Peter Glendening. Well, he, he actually came to the office and dropped some samples on my desk one day and said, look, what do you think of these? And I said, well, these are American, aren't they? And he said, no, these are British hops. And I said, sure. I said, I don't think we can produce this sort of variety in the UK with this intensity of flavor. He said, no, no, this is something I've grown and picked. Some samples I've taken from plants that I've been nurturing in my back garden. And um, I thought, right, okay, we've got to, we've got to do something about this. We've got a, an industry here that's got a great history um, and lots of great people in it. And we really need to develop more of a palette of varieties. So we, we, we then started to look for varieties with higher aroma, higher flavor. And of course, we've seen Jester and Olicana come through the system and uh, late, more later Mystic. And um, uh, uh, we've got Godiva and also the, the Harlequin now, which is coming through. And there's more in the pipeline along. And this is one of my lifetime ambitions, I suppose, now I've turned it into a bit of a thing to try and get British varieties for local breweries that will give those intense flavours that we get from the American hops. And, you know, that's not to say I want everyone to stop using American hops. That's not what I'm looking for. What I'm trying to do is to say to people, like, you know, let's try and use something that's local. We all want people to buy local beer. So um, let's see if we can do that with some local hops that we can develop, which will, um, which will give us the flavours we're looking for. Um, and I think we're getting there. We, it's taken a long time. I thought it would come, well, I thought we'd get some results quickly. I was surprised how quickly they came, but it's such a slow process developing new new varieties. And um, I suppose and, and, my, my frustration, I want to get them out there into the market more quickly. Um, but we are, we are pushing up as fast as we can with that. And um, hopefully we can start to grow the acreage again in the UK, because this year is going to be tough, you know, with, COVID and with uh, Brexit and with uh, the lockdown and everything, I think it's going to be quite difficult for, for British growers. We're already looking at reducing acreage this year um, and trying to um, sp spread that so next year they can pick up, when beer sales pick back up, we can pick back up with growing some of the hops. But it's all, always a worry when things go like this that we will lose some growers and the more growers we lose, the less we're likely to get back in, which is which is very uh, very frustrating. Yeah. But, uh, hopefully we can get we can get growers through that and moving on a bit. So, Paul, looking at looking at the UK growing side, uh, the, the farming side, um, in the time you've spent at farms, um, what changes have you seen from the agriculture side, uh, farming methods? I guess pesticides are being trimmed and trimmed and trimmed as, yeah. as you know, people more people deem them uh, unsafe for whatever type of Know, health issues. Um, how, how how have you seen that change? And sort of like maybe sort of like methods of far of harvesting and and storage. Yeah, I think the biggest thing, John, has just been the reduction in acreage, um, which again is is very sad to see. But if um, if I look at when when I started, we were producing about 120,000 zentners a year, um, 
and now we're producing probably a thousand centers a year. You know, something Explain. like that. I'm just trying. I've got. I've got to work that out now. Um, Explain uh, the to me as well, Paul. Because these days we talk in tons and thousands, and it's probably not right. But it, it is some, somewhere that in that sort of um, uh, analogy, that sort of uh, level, that the acreage has dropped hugely. Um, and there aren't so many growers. I mean, there were over 100 growers when I started. There are now about 50, 55. And um, did you did you say something about Zentners? Yeah, the Zentners. yeah explain to me what a Zentner is. I, uh, I've, seen, I've seen it on a bale, on bales back, in my, uh, back when I was at the... Uh, at Ramsgate, and uh, yeah. but I've never really asked anyone what they were about. Well, I think it all follows on from um, bushels and uh, hundred weights and things like that because I, I know that one of the scales that I used to be weighed, we've, we've now got them in our foyer as a, a museum piece. I, no doubt I'll be there one day as a museum <laughs> piece. But at the foyer, there's a, there's a, some weigh scales I used to put the bales onto, and one end of the scale we had a, a 56 pound weight, and on the other end you put the hops, and you then you you weighed off against what they were to balance the weight out. Um, but um, I think there were bushels, and then it was hundred weights, and then we went decimal, and we went to a German measure, which was a Zentner, which the Germans ironically didn't use that often. But we used to use it quite regularly. Zentners was always talked about in the UK. And a lot of the regional brewers, the older regional brewers, talk about Zentners still in, in the UK. Um, I've sort of worked away now tons and kilos, but a Zentner basically is 50 kilograms. So it's a, um, a kilogram, which is a decimal measure. And of course, uh, 50 kilograms was clo as close to the old um, uh, hundredweight as you could get decimally, if that's the right word. Um, so yeah, Zentners was a big part of the business for a long time, and then it, eventually we managed to train our brains around to thinking more about kilograms and and uh, tons of hops, which is pro probably far more sensible. Um, but yeah, I can't remember how we got round to that. <laughs> we were talking about sort of the, how the how the UK sort of like the hop growing industry has changed, maybe in the time that you've yeah. been at farms, and uh, how their approach to farming might have changed as well. Yeah, so that reduction in acreage was huge. And the more efficient growers survived, and the ones which uh, produced better hops, I suppose, survived. Um, and we we have been trying to work with growers on quality, and I think um, with Will now coming up, uh, moving over towards his technical director role, we've got a um, more focus on quality with the um, the growers. Uh, we've got a program in now that we're looking at ways to improve the kilning and the temperatures. Um, but before that, um, the growers really were very responsible and they were looking at pesticides. The pesticide residues in particular have changed massively now. The pesticides we used to use 30 years ago are very different to the pesticides we use now. They're a lot safer. Uh, they're, they go through a lot more testing. And even the stuff that's safe, um, if, it's, if there's risk involved, it is removed. So, you know, things like bees are considered, uh, birds and bees are considered a lot more than they were in the past. Um, and thank God. And, uh, you know, we, we're, we're looking at things now, which uh, there is a worry now, particularly even in Germany now, where they grow a lot more hops than we do. There, there, there is a worry from the growers that if we go much further, some of these hops won't be able to be grown because they won't be the control of the pests and diseases. I think there will be a lot more conversions to organic, um, but that may, may make the crops a little bit more variable. But I'm sure we're going to see a bit more organic coming in, and we will learn from that. I think we will learn how to manage and, and farm better with the organic practices. Perhaps not take away all the, you know, the, the fertilizer and pesticides that we use, 
but they certainly reduce the uh, the harmful and the toxic effects, which today are quite minimal anyway. Um, it certainly puts an emphasis on on hot breeding, doesn't it, and breeding resilience into into, into varieties and uh, exactly it's certainly an important space at the moment, isn't it? Exactly, John, and I think that that is one of the key parts. You know, if, when we get varieties coming through they have to go through wilt tests, they have to go through powdery mildew, they have to go through aphid, look, we're looking at aphid resistance as well. And if anything is anything remotely uh, susceptible to these things, we tend to ignore them. And um, the great thing is things like Harlequin are, are using, this is anecdotally rather than actually showing nowadays, but anecdotally we're using about 20% less pesticide and less fertilizer on these crops. And they're still producing good yield and, and good quality. So. That for me is fantastic news because that means that you know we're on the right track um, with the flavours and with the um, uh, the more sustainable production. I think those are the things that we've got to pat ourselves on the back for and push forward with that as well. You know, get 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 even farther along the line with even better and stronger varieties going forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, Paul, looking forward to. I mean, taking a, a snapshot of where we are now and, and maybe looking forwards the next five years. I mean, hot selling hops is a pretty competitive space, isn't it? Uh, and you yeah. have to sort of like move very quickly with the with trends and. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I, I feel a little bit like the old boy at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of new brewers coming in and a lot of brewers who uh, I've worked with over the years. And um, it's it's great to see that there's still a passion and there's still a lot of innovation in the industry. Um, you know, I've said all along, and we've used it as our strap line here, that, that, that our mission is to to help brewers brew great beers. And whatever that takes, you know, whether that's new varieties, stocking malt, stocking fining, stocking whatever, whatever, it, whatever helps breweries, um, we will try and do. And um, I think that will be true of, uh, into the future as well. You know, uh, I, uh, I'm looking forward to the future. I'm looking forward to getting back out of this uh, this lockdown phase and getting back to the pub and enjoying a pint of beer with with uh, with friends and, and and customers, and um and just getting back to normal and 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 uh, taking the industry forward again because I think it's a fantastic industry. It's a great industry to work in, and I feel very privileged to have the have had the time and all the experiences that we've you know had over the years. Um, there's such a lot to uh, uh, to look back on, but also to look forward to. So it's uh, exciting. It's always exciting here, John, as you know. <laughs> I, I do know. And it is a fabulous industry, isn't it? There's so many lovely people, uh, with so many great tales, so many friendly faces when you go and see people, smiles, yeah. sharing of knowledge. Um, people aren't precious about those sort of things. Um, yeah, it's it's a lovely, lovely world to, to live in, the brewing, the brewing world. So, uh, yeah, let's hope it recovers and uh, and... I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. Yeah, I'm sure it will. Paul, I think we can wrap that up there, don't you? Sounds good, John. Yeah, no, thanks very much for that. And uh, I hope I haven't rabbited on for too long. Um, no. Hopefully that uh, that will give uh, give some people some insight into what we've been looking at over the last 30 years. And hopefully we can catch up in another 10 years time and I can give you another 10 years of uh, history. <laughs> <laughs> Should yeah, be good. To that. All right. Thanks, John. Cheers, Paul. All the best. Feel free to click the like button if you so wish. We'll be producing some more over the next few weeks, including five minutes with Fairums, where we'll be interviewing certain brewers. Look out for those and take care.